Hey everybody, and welcome to the Fart Fetish Podcast once again. The Fart Fetish Podcast is where we seek to find the answer to, what is fart fetish? Where might it come from? How is it enjoyed? And what are the people like who have this fetish, and other fetishes too? We do this on every first Friday of the month, on almost all major podcast platforms, and at fartfetishpodcast.com. You can also enjoy erotic fart stories, captions, and videos at thefartcloset.com and support the podcast at the same time. That's thefartcloset.com. And now it's my special pleasure to welcome Sir Ezra Algos to the podcast. Ezra is the producer and host of the Ask Ezra Intimacy Coaching podcast, as well as an educator, researcher, author, and intimacy coach. They join us on the show to talk about their kinks and fetishes like power exchange, impact, humiliation, objectification, and ass fetish. We also dive a bit into their work around radical sexual acceptance, as well as explore topics like soft and hard skills, knife play, sex magic, projection, and we ponder the possibilities AI might bring, or is already bringing, to the practice of kink and fetish. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, so let's get ready for the Fart Fetish Podcast. Actually, before I start, I wanted to add a disclaimer at Ezra's request. The personal preferences expressed by Ezra are not value judgments, nor are they recommendations. Also, trigger warning if you're sensitive to the discussion of consensual non-consent, which does occur in this episode. And with that disclaimer made, on to the podcast. Thanks very much for being here, Ezra. Let's start with a little bit about yourself, sort of generally how kink, BDSM, fetish, all these things uh, align for you. What, you know, what would be on your kink business card if you, if you had one? Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely do have a kink business card and uh, it's hard for it not to be like an eight and a half and by 11 sheet of paper, right? Um, so it's because there's a lot. Um, I, I would say like I had really early um, identification of fetish and then um, and then kind of had this unfortunate misunderstanding that that wasn't part of building a life and it wasn't part of like healthy relationships and sort of set it aside. And then, and then I got to sort of come out again in my, um, my late twenties, you know, I like a lot of different fetish activities and I generally identify as a top or a dominant and I really like, I have wide interests. We'll get into it, but um, I'm not the kind of fetishist who's like, it's this and it's only this and it's this all the time. It's, um, it's really a buffet, a fruit salad, if you will, of different uh, fetish interests. Um, if I was going to paint with the broadest strokes, I would say, you know, I like to focus on control and impact and humiliation and objectification and degradation as well. That's great. That's great. You mentioned starting early. Um, you know, you don't have to get specific, but do you know about when that was and, and how that was that you discovered um, this, this you know, fetish, um, I guess, inclination you had? Yeah. No, I do. And I, um, I think a lot of people had the experience of, like, playing doctor as kids and, like, exploring each other's bodies, right? Absolutely. I played, I played proctologist. So I would definitely was like, okay, time to look at the butthole. And that's what I was doing at like three, four years old. So 
that probably is my earliest fetish activity. I also remember like really getting into role play. And I think kids get into role play and it's not necessarily sexual, but I think, I think for me it was sexual, even though I sort of didn't understand what sexual was at that point. But I, I distinctly remember um, this, you know, this was daycare, this was pre-kindergarten. And this girl said, okay, we're going to play house. I'm the mommy and you two are dogs. And then, so we would just being dogs, you know, running around on our hands and knees. And um, that, that really, I think that really felt sexual to me, even though I maybe didn't have the language at the time. For sure. For sure. And as you like, grew up i know you said you had this uh this down period uh, which i which i will ask about too but did you um did you find like any of these fetishes any of these kinks you like seem to work better together or are they like something that kind of all have their own moment um some are mix and match like what what do you feel about like that in terms of uh kinks or your kinks um well i think that there are like some fetishes which really kind of need to be given space just out of practicality like um sploshing for example or like messy sex when you're like using food and stuff you know i i kind of need to have a end period and say okay now we're cleaning up now we're doing now we're being clean again you know i can't um you know i can't be messy and then just transition into something else without like having it be a, a clear transition. You know, another thing that occurred to me in terms of like incompatibility is uh, knife play. Like I love to do um, like sensation knife play, like not necessarily cutting, but definitely like fear inducing and like sort of threatening with a knife and stuff. And that is great. And And I think like thematically it would work really well with like rough sex, but you know, when you're being rough with somebody, there's there's a lot going on and having a knife in hand is like maybe not the best thing. And so like the knife play has to happen first when we're calm enough that we can be still and predictable and then things get a little bit more wild later and the knife is put away, you know what I mean? Um, but I think with regard to almost everything else, it's like the more the merrier. And I think it's actually kind of a challenge for me to keep the list limited so that it's not like we're just checking fetish activities. Like, okay, 10 seconds, you sat on my face, moving on. Okay, this, we did this, moving on. You know what I mean? That's that's tempting. And I think that in order to have a really satisfying experience, you have to keep it limited and keep it, you know, keep them wanting more, so to speak. There's always coming back to the table, but like for a specific scene, you can only do so much, right? For sure, for sure. And that's a great point about almost like, uh, I mean, of course you're planning it out, but like plotting out, like you're scripting the scene ahead of time and the, and the activities mm -hmm. you wanna do, kind of keeping it uh, focused, which makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, especially when uh, your kinks and fetishes are are broad and you like a lot of things, I could see it being very easy to get lost in the like, let's do all the things, you know? Yeah. Well, and even, even I'll make a list of like five or six activities and maybe we only get to two or three. And mm. that's pretty consistent uh, experience I have.
That's great. Well, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I want to, uh, this maybe not something you could speak to, but I'm curious, do you think the feeling of knife play changes uh, if you're using a knife that is not realistically sharp, like a prop knife, not necessarily plastic, but some other kind of safe prop dulled or something? Oh, yeah, sure. And I think that nerfing or mm -hmm. like removing the risk of danger is a valuable activity. I think with knives, especially, you could lose your life if you're playing with a knife and you Definitely. make a mistake, right? Um, being prepared for those mistakes is important. And also, like, that's really heavy. Like, how do you handle somebody who's bleeding excessively? Right. If you're not prepared to that answer that question, you probably shouldn't be playing with a sharp knife. Right. Um, and, you know, I've gone through that training and like have awareness of like how to handle that. God forbid that ever happens. But to me, the value of the real risk is more attractive than the burden of having to deal with the consequences of the risk. Right. So, um, you know, I'm happy to use a blindfold and a credit card instead of a knife. And, you know, you think there's a knife on you and it's thrilling. But for me personally, I'm not going to be enjoying it as much. Right. And you know, maybe that's a good activity for somebody who I'm not. I can't trust to be still or predictable. But if I've got a partner who I'm like really close with and I know well, then it's absolutely going to be a, a razor sharp knife. Sure. Sure. That makes perfect sense. And you talked about training as well where where does one go to get like training for that kind of activity i know there's like stage combat but i doubt that's what the training you're talking about yeah no knife combat is um is not as useful as you might think they pretty much say don't get stabbed <laughs> but um no it's i mean it's there's a, a website and the name is escaping me i just wanted to jump in with a note i checked with ezra the website is stopthebleed.org. But it's basically what you do with excessive bleeding, right? And, um, you know, there are coagulants. There's, I always carry bandage roll, which is uh, really good because if it's not a specific size of bandage, it's a roll. So you can use whatever you need. Um, I carry a first aid kit. Um, I've been to knife play classes. I've, I've taught the knife play class. Um, you know, I think as much as going to a class is valuable, I think like talking to an expert is even more valuable. And anytime I'm in the presence of somebody who is really experienced, I do my best to try to, you know, pick their brain in a respectful and um, practical way. That's very smart. And I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that it's really not just classes in knife play, but also the, the medical um, classes and workshops and what have you that you've also gone to and, and training you have. So it's not just like a, Hey, I'm ready to play with a knife now. It's literally like I, you know, the consequences of knife are also in my head. You know, I know what to do, mm -hmm. um, should this situation arise, which is, um, I think a lot of prep that people who are like, yeah, knife play. And I'm not just blaming knife play people, people who get into kinks in general, they like these kinks and they don't think about the like, well, what if I, you know, what if I really, really need to breathe while you're sitting on my face? Or what if I like you do these situations of safety um, mm -hmm. that maybe sometimes are not discussed? Do you find yeah. 
because you've talked to quite a few people on your show, uh, your podcast, which we'll we'll get to in a bit. Do, do you think most people have a, a tendency to like rush into these things and not be fully prepared for what they, you know, what comes out of it? Um, I mean, I think that does happen, especially with teenagers. Um, I mm. think that like our ability to evaluate risk kind of develops into our thirties. Um, honestly, I think it's like this evolutionary governor. It's like a, it's a thing that keeps us from thinking too critically so that we have kids before we can really understand what the risk is. It's cause it's good for the species for us to brazenly make decisions. Sure. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think that young people tend to rush in headlong without really understanding the risk. And I think a really good example of that is breath play where people will do like erotic choking and um, because you're young, like you don't imagine that you could get hurt. And there are injuries that can happen that don't really bother you for decades. Right. But then decades later, you're, you're having a really hard time. Right. Um, you know, for example, you can, um, you can have a stroke, you can asphyxiate, you can, um, you can suffer brain damage. You can, um, yeah, you can get a blood clot, um, especially uh, women that are on birth control are already at a higher risk of blood clotting. And then doing breath play is going to increase that risk of blood clotting. So, um, and a blood clot can lead to a stroke. So um, I think that's really the case. But, but also like I tend to not talk to teenagers. Um, I tend to not talk to people in their early 20s as much as I talk to people sort of in their 30s and 40s. And I think that that's because there's this, um, like a time that it takes time to discover. I think the, the younger generations are are all discovering things really quickly and really early. And um, the older generations took more time, mostly probably because of the accessibility of media. But the people who I tend to talk to, they're more likely to be a bit paralyzed by indecision or fear or caution and they actually need a nudge in the other direction of you know take the risk and see what happens and you know how can you prepare for that risk or what's the worst that can happen and can you be prepared for that right but i think that's who's looking for coaching i think the people who run on run headlong are not gonna be looking for anybody's help because they got it right or at least they think they do yeah yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's great to note that that yeah, just just people should, you know, be prepared but also not have um reservations or 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 fears around it as well. I mean, there's nothing to harm in in starting to learn about it and then, you know, going out and and you know, finding proper partners and doing it safely. Yeah, and I and I like shy away from the word safe because mm they're all risks, right? You get in a risk every time you take a flight of stairs or you get in a car. For sure. But you know, is the, is the risk worth the reward? Can we manage those risks? Are we, are we risk aware? Are we understanding what the risk really is? Right. So those I think are, are important. So safer or as safe as possible, I think are appropriate things, but I try to, I try not to describe fetish activities as safe because they generally are not. That's a yeah. That's a fair uh, nuance to to add. I appreciate that because it's it's very true. It's it's a very true point. Going back to you, what is like a fantasy 
uh, scenario for you that that's something you're comfortable sharing that kind of incorporates the, I guess the best of, or the favorites, uh, activities that you would see, like what, what was a, uh, a scene or something that you would plot out that would be like, this is, this is completely perfect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like power imbalance. You know, I really like a mindful and conscious choice to transfer power in a relationship. Um, I like the motif of the corrupter. I like the idea that like somebody's coming to me innocent and I'm going to like corrupt them and make them this filthy slut or dirty, or I'm going to make them be devious where they weren't going to be devious before. And I think that's attractive because it's, it's almost like a fear and I get to sort of put that fear aside. If we're role-playing it, then obviously that's not real. Um, in the same vein, I like the trainer motif. I like, you know, the idea that, okay, you want to get really good at this. I'm going to help you be really good at this. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to keep you working. I'm going to, you know, set up, uh, rewards and punishments to help keep you on track. That's, I think, really attractive to me. Um, everything to do with ass and anal is just awesome. Uh, yeah, that's to me, that's like bread, right? Like, okay, you can make a sandwich, but you got to have some bread. There's got to be some ass. So, <laughs> um, and I really like obedience and servitude. You know, I think power exchange, there's like a spectrum of how much are you power struggling versus how much is it a cooperative power imbalance? And I really strongly side on the the obedience, the cooperative power imbalance sort of situation where, you know, that person is trying to help me do what I'm doing and not fighting against me. Um, but to get really specific, yeah, I mean, I've been actively pursuing fetish activity and knowledge and interests for 10 years. So at this point, I've got an opportunity to really access some like far out stuff. And I think the thing that's really attractive to me right now is creating meaning, creating purpose, creating like almost like a divine presence within the experience. And so to me, that looks like sex magic where we are in, you know, consciously engaging in rituals and invoking spirits and, and our sexual activity goes from being meaningless to being like really meaningful. And I think it's interesting because that's an experience that we tend to only have access to within this like prescribed heteronormative, you know, progress of a relationship. We're making a baby, we're maintaining the marriage kind of, kind of vibe. And, you know, that's not really appealing to me in the way that it once was. And this is really appealing because, you know, I have a partner who is willing to say, okay, we're going to help work on your spiritual progress today through sex and any way that I can help you, I'm here to help you. And, you know, that's really attractive to me because it's like the goal is um, sexual arousal to the point of exhaustion and trance state. And then in that trance state, you get access to a higher power. And that's, um, that's this erotocomatose lucidity ritual that I've been doing 
a few times. Um, and I haven't seen God yet, but damned if I won't try again. That's great. Well, that's really great. It's interesting the way you frame it. Cause I mean, I consider myself on the other side of the slash, but in a similar desire for power imbalance, um, uh, control or being controlled or what have you. But it's interesting to think about the uh, spiritual experience because it's just something I've never really thought about in terms of like, you know, I I'm sure not every Dom thinks of this or thinks like this, or maybe they do. But I was thinking about like, for someone who is submissive, in my mind anyways, there kind of is no other task other than what the Dom wants. Obviously I'm speaking completely consensually, you know, not negotiated mm -hmm. paradigms, what have you. I'm not saying like, ah, you know, this is some kind of abusive relationship, but it seems like in a true power dynamic, uh, for a sub, the needs, the, what have you in a cosmic sense are erased for the dominant. So it's almost like all what you're saying is the subs energy is channeled into you giving almost as if giving the Dom or you in this case, more power to see God as it were, um, or attempt to, um, is that, yeah. is that hitting correctly to your ear? It is. It is. And I think it's interesting too, because I can, I can elect to make my priority the self-care of the bottom which is an interesting thing like, oh, you need to take care of yourself so that you're ready for me. And so now get like recontextualize the self-care for them. But, um, and you mentioned sort of like giving of your energy. And I think there's a figurative way to describe that, that really is accurate. That really is like, okay, we're doing this project and it's my project and you're helping me with my project. Right. But I think that there's actually a literal way that we engage that is also really interesting. And that's sort of energetic vampirism. So um, not that I'm drawing blood and sucking it, but instead I'm asking my partner to manifest a collection of sexual energy and then offer it to me psychically. And so that I think is really powerful. And, you know, I'm not sure what I believe and I'm not sure how much like concrete reality these play in, but I think they definitely undeniably play into our experience and how is the experience of my partner having this permission to like collect sexual energy in a way they maybe have never had permission to do before. And then also being free of it and being able to sort of give in to offering it up to someone. So that's really exciting for me right now. That's great. That's really awesome. And it's really interesting sexual paradigm to learn about. Maybe paradigm is not the right word, but it's a, it's an interesting, uh, you called it a motif, but I'm not sure motif is more the theme uh, you're using rather than the, uh, the spiritual experience. So I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. But let's talk, you mentioned, um, uh, as being one of your uh, interests, almost one of the maybe I kind of took it as one of the more important interests or more necessary um, interests, and it's of course one of the this this channel's uh, focuses. What aspects of of like as fetish do you specifically enjoy, and how would you say you practice um, 
these aspects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think ass is probably my first fetish. And, um, you know, if I had a gun to my head and I had to give everything up, but one, that's what it would be. Um, hoping that never happens because I don't want to give up my rich, colorful sex life. Yeah. But I think that, I, I mean, I don't know. They say you get, you know, sexually impressioned around like, you know, three or four. So perhaps it was these, you know, role-playing proctologist uh, experiences that really brought my focus to the ass and the asshole. Um, it is... So they describe like, um, it's, it's kind of out of use, but the term fetish versus the term kink, where kink is like a thing that is attractive to you, whereas fetish is a thing that's really required for sexual gratification. And if we're going to use those classical terms, then really like ass is my only fetish. And then everything else is a kink. Everything else I could take or leave, but but ass is just, it's ass is ass, man. It's um. I don't know why it's so attractive or, but I know, um, I know that, you know, if I'm going to orgasm, it's in my mind. If I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to have a satisfying sexual experience, then ass has to have something to do with it. Yeah. And, uh, so, I mean, again, I like to dominate. I like to be the top. And so oftentimes that's like, worship for my own pleasure um sometimes it's impact like spanking or flogging or paddling or whipping um i like to bite um i like to i like to eat ass i like to get smothered in ass that's like the most common way that i will bottom is to be to like have my face sat on which is interesting because i know that's uh one of your interests and we come at it from different sides of the slash and i'm I'm like, sit on my face for me, fucking do it, you know? Um, and whereas I understand when you're doing it, the person's like, here, I'm doing this to you for me. Uh, and so it's interesting, but um, yeah, I think, I don't, I don't know what about it is so appealing, but it absolutely is. I just, um, I could look at ass all day. I mean, that's great. Do you have a... Are there, of the, I think all five senses can come into play. Yeah. Of the five senses you, you know, would process the, the ass with, do you, do you use all of them? Do you prefer um, some or over others? What, uh, what's your feeling like of the essence mm. of, of ass, I'd suppose? I mean, I think the visual probably takes the cake, the, the image. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I'll actually be, having sex with somebody and envisioning their ass from a different angle that I can't see <laughs> in order to help me come, which is kind of funny. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I like a clean ass. And so the taste and smell of a clean ass is really nice. I like the feel, I like the, you know, tiny little peach fuzz hairs that are on the cheeks. Often I like, um, one of my favorite things to do is when I'm walking with somebody is to hold my hand on their lower back and just sneak one finger in the very top of their ass crack. And I swear just the feeling of the way that their ass is moving as they walk, like fills in 
the visual of the rest of the ass in my mind's eye. Like I just got one finger at the top of their ass crack and I can feel their, their butt jiggling and moving as they walk and bouncing as they walk. And I can see their ass. I'll be right next to them, but I can see it completely in my mind. Very interesting. Like some kind of, uh, I don't know the correct, maybe thermal or whatever, some kind of imaging situation you have just by touching. It's it's amazing. That's pretty cool. It's like an uh, extra extra ass sensory perception. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> that is great. That is great. Um, do you? I think you didn't say it explicitly, but there. I I mean I understand it already, but we talked and. Um, the, the, and what you've mentioned as well, there is a aspect of consensual non-consent into the, uh, play you, you seem to enjoy. Is that, is that correct? Is that a correct assessment? Well, yeah, I mean, it does come up and uh, we've had conversations before about it, certainly. Um, and you know, I think it's complex because to, to be honest, I think that my partners probably bring it to the table more often than I do. Um, and I am, as much as I'm a dominant or a top, like I also want to please my partner. And so I try to find like ways to incorporate that. I think there are aspects of it that are attractive to me. There are also aspects of it that aren't attractive to me. Like I know um, many people will want to fight back and sort of have this like physical struggle during sex. And to me, that's like entirely unappealing. You know, I don't, I don't enjoy power struggle. I think the thing that's really appealing to me about CNC is like post power struggle, right? Like, um, okay, so I'm, for example, I've got a partner who likes to wrestle. Okay, but she's very good at wrestling, and so I might lose uh, more often than I win, and so that's it's not as appealing as it might be. I might need to practice wrestling so I can do that with them. But what I can do is sort of say, okay, we're going to play wrestle, but you're going to have to let me win. And then once I've won, now you're defeated for the rest of the time. And so that CNC has like flavors the event, but isn't constantly present, right? For sure. And I think, you know, ways that it's attractive to me is the more subtle ways. Like I really enjoy... Um, like coercion role play or corruption role play where, you know, it's you owe me rent and you don't have the money, but I think I can find a way that you can pay. Right. So that's like, a, it's, there's a little bit of coercion in there. There's the CNC coercion. Right. Um, but of course we're all consenting and we're all talking about things and there's safe words, but I do love this, concept of like taking advantage of a power imbalance because I think that is something that I'm insecure about and have to like work towards making sure it doesn't happen in my romantic life and in my daily life. Right. And so being able to role play that really frees me of feeling anxious about it in the moment. I think. That's really great. That's a really great. I appreciate all the thoughts you shared in that area because I had, I had a couple or at least one one thought is one thing I noticed from something you said earlier, it seems like something that is important for you. And I think it ties into the CNC as well. And this is just my assessment, you know, fuck me. But the it seems like you enjoy your play to have an arc. 
like it, you like it to actually have um a uh a progression as it were um it, you don't want to get bogged down in one one thing uh, one like that's why you don't want to just fight essentially the whole time it's not appealing you want to you know get into other activities it's it, you know the the fighting the cnc the the struggle as it were is almost more of a uh, work up foreplay um than a mm-hmm. like uh like i i look at it in a different way almost as you know um and again this could be the slash difference of like you know i see it as as punishment as like something that for me the struggle continues mentally maybe it won't continue physically um which i could definitely understand that being exhausting for both people but mm-hmm. at the same time like for me in cnc i want to continue to be like hating it or or dis dis in in displeasure as it were at least mentally because that is how I'm actually, you know, enjoying it. Actually, actually being pleasured is, is the idea of, of displeasure, of struggle, of, um, you know, being kinkfully abused as it were. So I'm not, I'm, I'm interested to, to like, as I talk to more people and, and hear more about this, I'm interested to see, um, if, you know, if there's a consensus or if there's a, a a maybe even balance of people who are like, you know, I enjoy CNC, but there has to be a point where it stops. Or if like for some, maybe again, the sub side that the CNC kind of continues, even if it's not a continued or, or ongoing physical confrontation. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. And I think there's trends that happen organically and I couldn't comment on the specifics of this, but I can say that I've seen trends emerge. So there probably is a trend, right? Like um, something like 90% of people who want to do foot play stuff, want to do clean feet and 10% want to do dirty feet. It's pretty consistently happens that way. Right. So I think you're probably going to be able to find a ratio. If you pull enough people, there's probably a ratio of 50, 50 or two to one or one to four or something like that. Um, that does happen. But I think for me, I think my bounds are my insecurities. And I think feeling desired and feeling wanted is really important for me. And if there's that constant struggle, not only is it physically exhausting, but it's like a constant reminder of like, I don't really want this. And that to me feels really icky, right? Um, So, you know, ironically, consensual non-consent in an ideal setting for me is going to actually reinforce my partner's interest in me. It's going to, it's going to show me that my partner's interested. Um, almost like I, I want it, but I don't want to want it. And then, and then they give in and so they want it, but they feel kind of dirty or gross about it. And that's, that's hot because there's, they're also displaying that they want it, right? And it's, I think it also sort of speaks to the power experience of, you know, we've made this choice to have a power imbalance and this activity really displays that power imbalance, even though we are both more empowered by engaging in that dynamic. That's very interesting. That's a very interesting understanding nuance to hear because 
I would say in a similarly different way, I find it is like, because the treatment in the fantasy for me is odious and, and, and dis disliked, it is almost like the feeling of being chosen by the dominant to receive mm -hmm. this activity. So um, again, maybe this is a submissive dominant split. And again, there will probably be different dominants and different subs who feel completely different than the two ideas we've expressed. But yeah, I, I, for me, it's really like the being useful, being chosen by a dominant, even if the activity is what in fantasy is being uh, torturous or not enjoyed, as it were. Yeah, I hear you. And I think it, it also like is a relief in some way from the responsibility of owning your desires. Like it can be hard to have these desires that don't feel like things you should want or feel like things that you think match with your personality. And when you have somebody who goes, uh, this is what's going to happen, whether you like it or not, then you get to sort of enjoy it without having to feel that burden of it not meshing with your personality or with what you think you should be doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that your, I believe always, you said you're always the dominant in, in your scenes, but you also talked to me about um, a idea of a ramp up to uh, submission for yourself. I, I'm not even really sure what that fully means. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, no, I think um, it's it's been really challenging for me to explore submission because of feeling unsafe with people. I think my my ability to trust people is a limiting factor in this environment. And I think the other thing that's really challenging is that when I do have a relationship with people, it's it's almost always this dom sub where I'm the dom. And then I don't want to spoil the pot. So, okay, I trust somebody really well and I know them really well, but if I switch, am I going to think about them differently? Are they going to think about me differently? And so it's been really challenging, but I think what I'd like to do is establish a relationship with a dominant female at some point and really use it like a laboratory and try things on and, and experiment. Um, but I do, I do think that that could be really fun. I do think it'd be really exciting and appealing. And it sounds really appealing to like not be responsible for the evening and just sort of say, okay, all I have to do is, you know, show up clean and sober and, uh, and see what happens. Right. That would sound, sounds really fun to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That I definitely can, can vibe with for sure. Even just as, you know, someone who's hosted events, I'm sure people are like, yeah, I don't want to just, yeah, you do the event, throw, throw my party for me or what have you. <laughs> That's I right. Think, I think it'd be a lot easier for sure. I'm pretty sure. I hope everyone uh, listening to this is familiar by now with uh, your podcast, the ask Ezra podcast. But why don't you, if not, why don't you tell them, uh, tell people what is the podcast you have, when when did you start it, and, and why? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so I started the Ask Ezra Intimacy Coaching Podcast in November of 21, and we are 
at the time of this recording, 48 episodes in. Congrats, nice. I started it because I realized that one of the most difficult parts of my job as an intimacy coach was describing what an intimacy coach does, right? It's not so common that everyone knows what it is. So I've got to sort of be a poet about what it is that I do. He said, well, what if I could shed a light on what happens in an intimacy coaching session? And I think that's super valuable because these things happen behind closed doors. So, you know, there's not a lot of wisdom or evidence that you can see that is like, this is what an intimacy coaching session could look like, right? So that was sort of the the impetus to start was really like a marketing uh strategy right to sort of expose and say hey this is this is what it looks like when i do coaching sessions and if you want to get involved you, we can do a private session you know behind closed doors the thing that came out of it that i think is really valuable and i think it's the thing that keeps me going but i didn't i didn't necessarily see it coming when i started it's the fact that there are some people who are never going to be able to afford intimacy coaching we're never going to be able to have that kind of conversation with friends either, but they sorely need it. They desperately need it. And so this is an opportunity for them to learn from other people's mistakes or challenges or experiences and better their own lives in the privacy of their own home. And I think that's really wonderful. And, you know, another benefit that has been really nice is that I've been able to find guests who could really benefit from intimacy coaching, but again, could just not afford it, could not participate in that um, that financial investment, right? And so I've been able to sort of reach out and help them as well, and then also to share my platform and and give people voices who don't necessarily have them. That's great. That's really great that you do that and offer this to, and make it accessible to people who um, may not be able to otherwise, because it is, uh, as you said, a very important, uh, if nothing else, a very important conversation for people to be able to have with somebody. Um, so just, you know, opening, opening that up, that possibility up to people, I think is, is super important. And it, I, I think it ties into your, uh, another aspect of you, which is, uh, you as an educator, um, what, what mm-hmm. kind of areas do you, do you teach? And it, People may have heard the terms like soft skills or hard skills. Which do you teach? And and if you would talk a bit about the difference of those. Sure, yeah. So the difference between hard skills and soft skills is hard skills are like things you do, like whipping, flogging, spanking, paddling, fire play, knife play, things where you're like using a tool on a person. That's typically described uh, as a hard skill. And then soft skills are things that are like interpersonal skills like negotiation, conflict resolution you know, mind fucking things like that are, are more described as soft skills. And I do teach both. I really enjoy teaching classes like fire play and knife play and flogging and whips. I love the, the hands-on classes are my favorite. I love just being in a room with a bunch of people who an hour ago were not sure how to whip or were having trouble whipping. And then here we are and we're all cracking whips left and right. It is it is a thrilling and invigorating experience. And my two, the two favorite classes, my two absolutely favorite classes to teach 
are mind fucking mindfully and radical sexual acceptance. So mind fucking mindfully is the title of the book that I wrote in 2001 and I'm sorry, 2021. And, you know, we've since sold 2000 copies. It's so much fun to teach the class because it's all of this like pageantry and performance art of mind fuck demonstrations. And it's a whole lot of fun with a demo with a, you know, a demo bottom and radical sexual acceptance is really exciting to me because that is the name of the proprietary coaching methodology that I developed. And I'm doing a research study on it where I'm using a mixed methodology to invite participants to experience the coaching and then sort of describe how it has, it has expanded their, their view or their acceptance or their, their life. And uh, there's a number of surveys they take before and after. So I'm getting like good data on how to, you know, what effect that coaching is having on people. Um, And to my knowledge, this is the only coaching methodology that has specifically been developed for gender and sexuality acceptance. So that's really exciting. And, and I love to do that class because it, I feel like it really opens people's eyes and, even if that's the only thing that they do, they just come to the class and see it. I think that what we can demonstrate is that you can move the needle on these ways that we live in the world and the experience we have with our sexuality and our gender, we can move the needle. We, there's things we can do that put in the work and help build acceptance and help relieve this stress, anxiety, this shame, this guilt that can surround being part of a sexual minority or going through a gender transition. So, um, so that one is the really the most exciting for me because it, it creates these really intimate connections and it ideally gives people tools that they can use to help themselves in the, their lives. That's really awesome. That's really great. And it seems like, yeah, mutually beneficial for both people who want to take place, take part and, uh, and for you to getting uh, the data you need on, on, I guess efficacy would be the right word. Efficiency. It is. I suppose. Yeah. No efficacy. Yeah. It's, it's not efficiency because it's not how fast does it work? It's does it work? That's fair. Um, That's awesome. That's awesome. And is that um, ongoing? Does that have an end date? Um, How long do you think you're going to be doing that research project for? Oh, um, that is a good question. It's almost like asking me when my graduate degree is going to be over. Right. When (laughs) is your graduate degree? Um, no, so, uh, it's interesting because I'm, I'm aiming to publish a book on the subject and I likely won't be done with the research project before I publish the book because I'm going to use the data from the research project to inform the book. But the fact is that in order to have quantitative data analysis, you really need like 75 participants. And that's a lot, you know, I'm looking at coaching each person for four hours over a period of six weeks. And I can handle about five participants a month based on my other workload. Uh, So that's, that's like 18 months of research. So it's doable, but I'm definitely going to publish the book before then. 
Um, and it's okay because it means that I'm really focused on qualitative data instead of quantitative data. And qualitative means that like, look at these trends that are developing. We need some additional uh, data in order to comment on their statistical significance. But these are the trends that we see forming. And you know, it's really challenging. I am doing this research independently. It's not being funded. So perhaps at some point, uh, you know, an institution will become involved and there will be funding and, it, you know, I'll have help and it will be a little bit easier to hit my 75 in a, in a shorter time frame. Yeah, that would be all. But they'll like come in at the last five. They're like, oh, you did 70? Like we, we got, we got, the last, <laughs> we got this last. Yes. We'll take it to the finish line. No worries. Later. Yeah. yeah. At that point, I'll just start a new project. Sure. No, yeah, right. Well, that's good. I mean, that'll, that's good. At least you have, uh, you have positivity and hope for, for the future and not like, not that you wouldn't, but it's just like, um, it is, as you said, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of hours of talking to people. So it's, it's mm -hmm. a good thing that it's something you, um, you know, you do enjoy or, or do have, uh, a sense of importance and desire to do with people. So that's really great. I'm, I'm glad those two kind of, you know, ideas, those two thoughts can mesh. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's a lot of work, but it but it has been really, really powerful for me because it has given me like a sandbox to refine the method. And also it has given me participants who are really grateful for being involved. And so they're really motivated to help give me feedback as well. Right. So that's been great. That's really great. That is great. Um, this seems like a dumb question in lieu of, you know, the case study, the podcast and everything, but I'm still going to ask, would you consider yourself pretty public or private about your kinks and, and fetish? Like, do you tell people uh, if sexuality comes into conversation and, and specifically maybe vanilla people? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm a hundred percent out and, and I, I think I struggle sometimes with, how much is an appropriate amount to share with vanilla people because of what is deemed appropriate and inappropriate and um, and how that sort of changes in different contexts. So I tend to be a little bit reserved until I get the green light and then I like overshare, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense actually. Do you, and you mentioned the word struggle. Do you find any struggles particular to you or, or struggles in the, in the um, fetishes or kinks that you, you want to play out? So like using, using kink as a way to process the struggle? Well, yes, but I, 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 I mean, I'm happy to take that answer. But I would also say originally, like, I'm more curious if there's societal pressures, there's like difficult difficulty finding play partners for activities i guess maybe some external pressures as well you you you're basically talking about internal pressures i'm also curious if there's external pressures to the to the plays and kinks that you enjoy oh yeah all the time i mean people there's i feel like there's a lot of people who project um their challenging emotions onto other people people project all the time in really icky ways even within the community, like you'd think that people would be really accepting within the community. And I think for the most part, the, you know, the BDSM community is an oasis of acceptance in an otherwise unaccepting world. But to sort of think that that 
community is free from the same kind of judgment and prosecution that you would find in the vanilla world is a mistake. Uh, and it can be a really dangerous mistake. So like, for example, I do a lot of heavy impact play, which is to say, you know, when my partners like to be spanked, they like to be spanked really hard or they like to be paddled or they like to be slapped in the face. And these are things where somebody else might draw a line and say, well, that's too, that's too much for me. And the proper thing to do is to say, well, that's not my kink. I'm glad they enjoy it, but I don't enjoy it. But unfortunately, what happens is people project and they go, oh, that person must be ill. That person must be sick. That person, they must have something wrong with them. They must be drunk. They must be fucked up to enjoy that. Because I like a spanking, but I don't like it that hard. Boy, I, you know what I mean? It's the judgments people make are really, they can really be disheartening and they can really kind of take the fun out of things sometimes. Um, so, yeah. That definitely is some external pressure. Like everybody has to tell you how your rope isn't the way that they would have tied. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't ask you at all how you would have tied. And that totally takes me out of my headspace and I'm not enjoying the evening anymore because somebody has to comment. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And one one projection you didn't mention, uh, but I bet is also very common is people probably think this person has been manipulated into this, into liking this or wanting this um, or, you know, playing with this person. It's like, oh, there's no way they actually like that. Someone must have tricked them or, mm -hmm. or, or put this uh, idea in their head that, you know, oh, you want to have sex with me, then you better do this or whatever. People, people get this whole idea in their, in their, in their brain. Yeah, absolutely. They, it's totally accurate and i think the thing that's really heartbreaking is that when that happens and it happens so much more frequently than i than it ought to when that happens nobody checks with the bottom they just make judgments about the top and they spread rumors and you know get nasty but nobody like goes to check with the bottom and say hey like are you okay right and that's what you would think would be the reaction to finding somebody who's been coerced or manipulated right you want to try to protect the victim, but nobody cares about the victim. They just care about making out a perpetrator. Yeah, it does seem to be that way in 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 many cases, and I'm sure outside of kink as well. There's a there's a lot of projection. You said it at the at the top of this is like there's a lot of people that um, I I would say don't know how to process their own things and and work on their own lives and kind of take some kind of joy or some kind of um, duty in uh correcting what they think are wrongs which is really um really unfortunate that that people find it uh, their their job to do that um where 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 it's really not appropriate um probably 9 times yeah. out of 10 well and i think i think projection is a normal thing that people do right and i don't want to like demonize people um, yeah no of course i mean I'm, I'm guilty of it myself i mean i would be i can remember eating at a fast food restaurant and looking at all the other people and, and like passing judgment on all those other people who are eating that same fast food that I'm eating in that moment. But it's because I'm not, because I'm sort of self-hating for eating this junk food when I'm not healthy. Um, then instead of actually owning that and, and dealing with that discomfort for my own behavior, I'm putting it on other people, right? But it's one thing to have it in your head it's another thing to stand up and go, 
you know, you fat fuck, you shouldn't be eating a double cheeseburger or something, right? That's that's when harm occurs. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you find um, play partners for your particular fetishes and kinks? Um, I, I'm like so tempted to like come up with grossly inappropriate answers to that, but I'm not going to because somebody's going to clip it. So um, I, you know, I find people at BDSM community events, uh, dungeons, munches. Um, there is some value in seeking partners in like kink adjacent things like goth clubs or the Renaissance fair or D and D board game nights. Not that I necessarily have found those to be particularly effective, but, but it does seem like it's, there's a chance there, but um, yeah, I mean, just be a part of the community and the right people will make themselves known. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I'm sure it's easier in some locales than others. Uh, you know, California, I think, New York, uh, maybe, uh, Chicago. Chicago, yeah, yeah, Atlanta. Um, but, but yeah, you know, if you're in a smaller area, it may be harder. But somewhere near you, there probably is a, a community uh, to find, even if it's uh, slightly more underground or slightly more... Um, uh, not a, not as above board, I guess, in terms of uh, mm -hmm. how to how to find it. Well, and I think dating site dating sites are getting more um, permissible. I think I've been, you know, banned from certain dating sites for being openly sadomasochistic. Um, mm. But I don't think that's happening as much anymore. And there's like dating sites that are more queer uh, friendly that are going to be more open to basically just stating outright that you're kinky and you're looking for kinky partners. Bad, but it's, it's a hard, it's a hard endeavor. I'm not sure um, what advice to give people. Um, my only pickup line in the vanilla world is nice tattoos. Did you get them because you like the way it feels? Oh, that's, that's good. That's good though. That's my only one. That's my only one to like suss out uh, masochists. For sure. For sure. I was going to say, I'd probably go to a roller derby game too. That might be a good way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Anywhere people are volunteering to get hurt. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you grow up with any media that you felt like had uh, hints or, or any kind of representation maybe it was not quite the right word to use, but they showed examples of your kinks early on, like cartoons, things you watched as a, as a child and were any of those formative experiences? Yeah. I mean, I think it's tough to point one out, but generally I would identify with the villain in things. And I always thought they were getting a really bad rap you know and you know i think that like the damsel being tied to the railroad tracks was always an attractive trope and uh yeah i mean i think that there was like a fascination with certain things like the aspects i think you know sadomasochism is kind of an inherent part of humanity and we may demonize people who are sadist or you know make people who are masochists into victims but i think that they exist in in nature and they exist in media and i think those things were probably really attractive to me 
And I'm not sure I sexualized them early on, but I think that they were attractive. I think that like I've always liked, you know, law and order or, you know, crime shows or things like that that are that sort of bridge the gap between like sexuality and brutality. But um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, I know that my girlfriend when I was 16 was my slave. Like I'm not, we didn't have the words for it, but she was like, she would do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. I say jump, she says how high, you know? Uh, so it was, it's kind of ingrained. It's kind of just how I operate, right? But where that came from, I don't know. And where, like what keyed me into it. I mean, I could tell you, I fell in love with every babysitter I ever had. I was so romantic. I was falling in love all the time, but, um, but I'm not sure what really keyed me into it. Yeah. Interesting. That is very interesting though. It is, it is interesting to hear, you know, people's different experiences. Would you say that you enjoy having your kinks and, and like, what are your, what are your feelings about them more, more broadly? Oh, I'm, I a hundred percent. I love my kinks. I, I like how weird I am. I love how, how bizarre things get. And, you know, I think there's an opportunity for my partners to really appreciate me on a, on a creative level, right? Like they, they relish my creativity in ways to torture them and ways to torment them. And that's really beautiful. You know, we, we connect on this like intellectual level, we connect on this physical level. I think it really gives me access to a wider range of people than I would have got otherwise, because, um, you know, like I'm play, I'm pansexual, and, you know, at least the very least play pansexual. So like I will do BDSM things with any, any body type, any sex, any gender. Right. Um, and I don't think without kink, I don't think I would have had access to that. And I think it's really beautiful. It's helped me understand so many other perspectives. It's helped me feel really powerful. Like before I found kink, I was like, I didn't, feel really sexually powerful and now I feel really powerful and really excited to be sexual and that you know live the rest of my sexual life and explore things that I can't even think of now right um that door is open and the door will always stay open and that's that's really wonderful and I think you know there's it's not without struggles it's not without difficulties it's not easy being you know a sexual minority but um but I think it's definitely worth it and it beats the hell out of, you know, being this way and keeping it a secret. Absolutely. Absolutely. And something you touched on there made me think of kink is really, is really part of this. I think human experience in like being mindful and being, and having mindful experiences. Um, I'm sure there's people who are doing it unmindfully, but I think generally um, and I think this goes for a lot of these alternative um, or what are being called alternative sexualities right now, such as poly, kink, what have you. I think the level of of communication of people that that practice these things, and again, the level of connection with their own 
true expression, not an expression of uh, what society has deemed correct and appropriate or or procreating, as it were. Um, it is a more experience of just what you want, just kind of what you would like to experience. And obviously then finding uh, a partner or partners that um, want to experience that same type of joy and euphoria and again, human experience with you. Do you, do you kind of uh, vibe or, or, or feel that feeling? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's another way of feeling intimate and I've met a lot of people who for whatever reason are sex averse, like people who aren't interested in having genital sex and BDSM is an outlet for intimacy. BDSM is another way they can connect with people. And I'm not uh, sex averse. I deeply enjoy, you know, both traditional and non-traditional forms of sex. But it's this other way of being connected with people and being close to people and feeling not alone and feeling, you know, having partners in play is so powerful. Absolutely. That's that's very good point. That's a that's a really strong point. What as we come to the close here, and and this has been a really, really great conversation, really, really deep, uh, almost academic. I, you know, in fact, academic um, conversation we had that we you know have not um, have not had to this point. So I really appreciate um, everything you've shared with us, both in your personal life and and really professionally as well. What do you think are your thoughts on the? future of kink fetish this community in general what what would you what would you say about that well i mean i think we're experiencing uh, a rapid change we're experiencing a change right now which seems to be faster than any time before if maybe matched in like the 70s or or in the late 80s when the internet sort of started connecting people because of COVID and everybody taking online classes, you know, there's, there was classes that were available in person and rarely there were classes that were available online. And then COVID happened and everything's available online. And so we have sort of like the biggest new class of BDSM enthusiasts than we've ever had in history. And it's definitely changing the community. I'm not in a position to say how or for how long. I do think the dust is going to settle at some point because, you know, three people enter the kink community and one stays. Two people just wanted to kind of vacation there or try it out for a couple of years and then sort of, you know, fade away or find a way to get their needs met outside of the community. Um, and so there's definitely going to be a contraction. And the contraction my prediction is that the contraction like the expansion will also be the largest we've ever seen. And so, you know, we may see like dungeons close like they were doing in the pandemic. We may see that happen in a year or two um, where, where all of a sudden the audience is, is lesser. I hope that doesn't happen, but you know, but I do think it will happen. And I also, I see AI and other technologies as becoming more and more involved in fetish and and BDSM, you know, it's it's hard to say how, but I think, you know, there's so many people on the planet at this point, and I think a lot of them don't have the skills or resources to, you know, create these 
intimate connections with other people and they also deserve to have fulfilling lives and find sexual fulfillment and if that's with you know an artificially intelligent play partner then you know then that's what it is right uh, but i think also aside from like solo play getting more connected you're going to also have long term relationships be more connected like um the the whole idea of a vibrator being able to be something you can connect to your phone and then somebody in a different state or country can then manipulate it. That's new. That's brand new. And I think we're going to see a lot of things like that emerge that are going to allow people to stay connected and intimate at great distances. No, that's great. That's, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I can tell you and all everybody out there, how you can see, uh, uh, AI already in action in kink on my captions page. Uh, where I do have uh, images and and actually writing uh, generated by AI. It's kind of like a using role play um, mm. to to write captions. And I don't know, people might be like, that's stupid. What the fuck's wrong with you? But I did it anyway. So you can see it and support the show at uh, fartcaptions.com and uh, see some of that on the more uh, recent uh, pages, if that at all interests you and anyone out there listening. Um, but more importantly, where can we find you on social media, your podcast, your research project? Where where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I My social media handles are either ask underscore Ezra underscore or at House of Algos, uh, H-O-U-S-E-O-F-A-L-G-O-S. Um, if you'd like to get involved in the research project, you can start by going to tinyurl.com slash start RSA. And that will just dump you right into the research project. And you can see if it's a right fit for you. You can quit at any time. Um, no obligation, no cost to participate. Um, I'm also really eager to work with people who can be helped by this uh, in a private setting. And I'll give you a link for that as well, but I do one-on-one -on -one coaching, I do weekend workshops, and I do uh, weekly group sessions at a discounted rate. So um, lots of ways to get involved. If you think that radical sexual acceptance or intimacy coaching or life coaching is, is right for you, and I might be able to help you reduce your shame, your guilt, help increase your acceptance and, you know, find communication skills to talk to your partners and have the kind of life and have the kind of sex you want in your life, uh, then please don't hesitate to reach out to me and perhaps we can work together. Absolutely. That's wonderful. I really hope people do take you up on that, uh, especially anyone listening to this show, because um, I think it can be beneficial, mutually beneficial for both you and the um and the, the person participating as well. So Ezra, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show and talking to us today. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And I'm, I'm so happy to have you as a friend and a colleague. Same, same here. See you next time. Okay, bye now.